children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. I'm going to stop right there. I'll pre- read, read the whole chapter if I'm not careful. We find in these verses a very interesting statement. This morning I quoted a verse out of John where the Bible talked about uh, Satan, the thief, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. What is interesting to me in these verses is that Satan is not the one taken away. God is doing the one taken away. And that's what I want to preach on for a little bit tonight, some things God has taken. Lord, help us tonight as we look into the scriptures. May our hearts be stirred and challenged. I pray that you'd allow me to be able to be a vessel in your hand to communicate truth. And may the church of the living God or benefit from this message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You can be seated. If you will back up with me to Isaiah chapter number one, I'm not going to read the chapter. I just want to point out a couple of things. And that is that God has given Isaiah a message, and the message is one of judgment. Whenever God's mercy and God's patience and God's long-suffering has run its course, you can mark it down if there's no repentance, if there's no turning back to God, there will be a time of judgment. And that's exactly what is happening in the book of Isaiah. God has given Isaiah a message. And the message is, in verse number two and following, in uh, verse number four, and sinful nation. He said in verse number three, that Israel, Israel doth not know, nor my people consider, talking about they fail to recognize who God is and recognize his rightful place as their Lord. And he talks about them being in verse number four, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers and children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel. You can do that. I tell you, you don't want to do that. I've seen people, they've taxed God's patience. They've pushed God's patience and his forbearance to its limits. God will and can be provoked by the sin of man. And he goes on, talks about that they've gone away backward in verse number four. And he describes them in verse number five as being the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint from the sole of the foot even into the head. There's no soundness but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. The country's desolate in verse number seven. Cities are burned with fire. It goes on and on and on and describes the judgment of God which was a direct result of their sin, was a direct result of their idolatry as we see in chapter number two. Verse number uh, 11 and down, he talks about the lofty looks of men. I'm in chapter two, verse 11. Lofty looks of man shall be humbled. Haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. He talks about the uh, ship. He talks about the, uh, the, their, their idols in verse number 18. He talks about their idolatry in verse number 20. And so this is a book of judgment. We get to chapter number three and here's how it starts out. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah. And so he then begins to give a list of some things that he has taken. Let me say this. Sometimes God gives people what they want, but he takes away what they had. A lot of times he will give people what they think they want and only to find out they were better off before. And I'm thinking about Psalm 106 and verse number 15 where David referenced that story in the Old Testament where they were asking for quail, asking for meat. The Bible says in Psalm 106, verse 15, he gave them their request, watch this, but sent leanness unto their soul. 
In other words, when he got finished giving to them, there was a deficit. There was a minus sign in front of it. You know, sometimes uh, God takes away some things. People take it for granted. People don't utilize it or appreciate it or thank God for it. These verses here, he's talking to Judah. He's talking to Israel. But as I study these verses out, I recognize something that is very profound. If you will notice with me down in uh, verse number eight, look at what it says. For Judah, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. And I realized that God took away some things in the first part of this chapter that literally brought about their destruction and their demise. Let me say it this way. God took away some things because God knew how to dismantle a civilization. And that is exactly what happened in these verses. You say, preacher, what's that got to do with me? Well, as I read these verses, I realized that to some extent, we are experiencing the same judgment in our country. We're experiencing this same judgment, this kind of judgment in our churches, in our homes, in our nation, where God has just decided that the best thing he can do for us is take away some things that are extremely essential. He referred to them in verse number one as, he taketh away the stay and the staff. The stay and the staff. That word stay is almost the same thing as the word staff. It literally refers to something that holds something up. If you've got like a bicycle with a kickstand, young people, you can understand what that stay is. Something that holds it up, something that props it up. Something that keeps it from falling over. As just like somebody with a, with a health issue or someone that's feeble or, or some of our elderly saints, they have to use a cane, they have to use a staff that helps them. And if you were to knock that staff out from under them while they were leaning on it, they would fall. God says he's taken away the staff and the stay. And then he says the whole stay of bread because bread is a necessity. You can do without a lot of things, but you gotta have bread and you gotta have water. And that's what he said in verse number one, that he has taken away. Basically what he says, I'm stripping away from you just the basic essentials that you have to have in order to survive. That's what he's saying. But he didn't stop with verse number one. He carries on with this list down through verses number two and verses number three. And basically what we discover is that God says one of the ways I'm gonna judge you is I'm going to take away the men. Not just men, but certain kind of men. Now, as I begin to study my Bible, I realize that there seems to have always been a shortage of men. There's always been a shortage of good men, solid men, faithful men. They're hard to find. In fact, in Proverbs chapter number 20 and verse number six, the Bible says most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. The Bible goes on in Ezekiel chapter number 22 and verse number 30 where God said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. I'm reminded of that, that challenge that was given out by Goliath of Gath over there in the valley of Elah where he went out and said, send forth a man, send the man that may fight against me. And he did that morning and night for 40 straight days and nobody stepped up. Right. Right. Send me a man 
to fight against me. None of them wanted to go. David shows up. David volunteered. God honored him. God blessed him. God gave him the victory. You know the story. But the truth of the matter is, there's a shortage of men. Seems to be a common thing. And we live in a country where men are a dying species. I hate to say it, but we got more, we got more manliness in some women than we do in the men. Some women's got more testosterone than a lot of men. Come on now. There's a shortage of men and all the single ladies said, amen. There's a shortage. Slim pickings, slim pickings. Boy, I'd hate to be a single lady today. You'd be scraping the bottom of the barrel. The dregs, the rejects and the outcasts. If I have to say amen to everything I preach, I'm going to be here all night. God gave a very detailed description of the kind of men that God took away in Isaiah chapter 3. I'm going to give you some. By the way, these are the same men that have been taken away from our country. The same men that have been taken away in many of our churches. There's a shortage and a famine of men. Why do we load up every year and go down to the pastor and his mighty men's conference down at Hartsville, South Carolina? Because there are specific preaching and men of God that get up and challenge our men to be men and challenge our young men to be men. And that's rare to find preaching and teaching to call the men out. Now, if the power goes out, I'm just going to keep preaching, all right? Don't you worry about that. It'll go, it'll go dark and the sound system will go off, but I'm going to keep preaching, all right? Don't you worry about that. Those of you watching live stream, you should have been here is all I can tell you. you. You should have been here, amen. If it trips and you miss it, hey, I don't know what to tell you. It is what it is. But I'm gonna give you a list tonight of some things that God took away from Judah and Jerusalem and he's taken them away. He has taken them away from America. He's taken them away from our churches. Let's look at them. Number one, he says the mighty man in verse two. The mighty man. Boy, I like that. I just like the sound of that. That pastor and his mighty man conference, I like it. Even if I wasn't able to go, I think I'd, I think I'd, I'd get a life-size poster of myself and send it with our guys to sit on a pew. I just want to be counted with the mighty men, amen. And I begin to look at that mighty man, and here's what it means. I looked it up. It Literally, in the Hebrew, mighty man's one Hebrew word. It means mighty. It means strong. It means a valiant it means an upright man. It means a champion. It means a giant. Well, we won't talk about that one. It means excel. That's what mighty man means. See, you've got men and you've got mighty men. You've got regular men and then you've got irregular men. Years ago when I was in South Africa, I wrote a book called The Exceptional Man. It's in the bookstore. The Exceptional Man. Because from the time I was a little boy, growing up, I wanted to be exceptional. I didn't want to be status quo. I didn't want to be average. I didn't want to be just some Joe Blow, live my life flying under the radar. I wanted my life to count. I wanted to do something. I wanted to make a difference. And there's a shortage today of mighty men. Mighty men. David was a man after God's own heart. And when Absalom's friends was trying to get him to undermine uh, David's throne, here's what Absalom's friends said to Absalom about his daddy, David. In 2 Samuel 17, 10, here's what they said. He also, that is valiant, 
whose heart is as the heart of a lion. I like that right there. The heart of a lion. I almost forgot for just a second where I was. I was looking for somebody to roar at, amen. Shout, whose heart is as the heart of a lion. He says, for all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. When David was in that cave of Adullam and, 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 uh, and Absalom was chasing him, Saul rather was chasing him, he had a group of men that trickled in from all over the country that were in debt and that were discontented and all these men that were discouraged. And you know what David did? David took a bunch of losers, about three or 400 of them. He took a bunch of losers, a bunch of bums, a bunch of outcasts, a bunch of nobody, and he whipped them into an army that nobody could touch. One of them take a spear and kill hundreds of men. One of them with a thousand Philistines. I mean, these guys were absolutely unbelievable. And the Bible described them as mighty men. David had mighty men. God give us mighty men. When I looked at that mighty men, here's what came to my mind. Men that are physically strong. I'm gonna tell you something right now. If I couldn't open a jar of pickles and my wife could, I'd get three o'clock in the morning and curl dumbbells till work time. Come on now. Physically strong. Mentally strong. A lot of men hadn't read a book since they graduated from high school. And that's, exact, that's pushing it for some of you. Some of you didn't read a book in high school. Somehow or another you managed to graduate without reading books. Emotionally strong. Men that are not easily discouraged. Don't always need somebody to comfort them and hold their hand and pat them on the back. Mighty men, mighty men are not snowflakes. Mighty men don't have thin skin. Amen. Some of you ladies don't understand how men operate. We get, you know, when we're around each other, you know, we're insulting one another and we're cutting one another down and y'all are like, oh my goodness. Let me tell you something. Men, when they insult one another, they don't mean it. Just like you women, when you compliment each other, you don't mean that either. That's kind of how that works. Oh, that's a pretty dress. I can't believe she bought that dress. I can't handle insecure, thin-skinned, snowflake, easily offended men. I can't handle it. And you gotta tiptoe through the tulips and it's like walking on eggshells when you're around them because they're so sensitive. Financially strong. We're talking about mighty men. Financially strong. Pay their bills. Boy, that's a novel concept, ain't it? Pay your bills. You bought it, pay for it. Earn a living. How's that for, how's that? Earn a living. Men that earn a living can handle their finances. They're not strapped and in debt. I'm reading my notes. If you get mad, just take it up with the person that wrote my notes. And that was me earlier. Not strapped and in debt, not dependent on others for everything. Independent and secure. We're talking about mighty men. There's a shortage of them. Bible says when a man marries a wife, should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. I believe that's what it says. Is that what it says? 
That's what it said when I got married. That's why I, when I moved out, I, when I got married, I moved out. I didn't ask Dad if I could put a, a, a full-size bed in the garage, sleep, live out of a suitcase. Dad, I want to get married. Me and Grace really want to get married, but I can't afford it. Can I live with you? My daddy would have said, you done bummed your head, son. Yes. Amen. I remember when I asked my dad, I said, Dad, I'm, I really am I'm in love with Grace. Can I marry Grace? Can I ask Grace to marry? I asked my daddy before I asked her daddy. Because I want to make sure mom and daddy was for it and make sure her mom and daddy was for it or I wouldn't have done it. I'll never forget as long as I live. I was out in the yard raking leaves. Social circles, Georgia. We was raking leaves. I looked over at daddy. I said, daddy, I'm thinking about asking Grace to marry me. What do you think about that? He looked at me and he said, have you got your ducks in a row? That's what he said. Have you got your ducks in a row? Now, I didn't have any ducks. I didn't have any chickens. I didn't have any, any, any geese or ganders. I knew exactly what he was talking about. When my daddy said, if you've got your ducks in a row, what he meant was, can you afford it? That's what he said. Amen. That's exactly what I said to these young men when they asked me if they could marry my daughter. I didn't ask for a copy of their doctrinal statement. I said, can you afford it? Well, that went over like a lead balloon. Where are we at? Mighty men. Well, let's move to the second one. Oh, it gets better. Oh, this is a good one right here. This is a good one. This is a good juicy message right here. I like this one right here. Some of you men should have put your steel-toed boots on before you come tonight. You brought your flip-flops, and you're going to regret that before this is over with. The mighty man. Secondly, he says, and the man of war. God has taken away from Jerusalem and from Judah the man of of war. Boy, I tell you what, I like that. I just, I like the sound of that. Yes, the, when, when you say man of war, all of a sudden I tense up and I'm thinking, man, I've been cleaning my guns for years. I finally get to pull them things out and yes. shoot that thing. Hallelujah. I finally get to shoot it. Man of war. The thought of war don't scare me. But let's not talk about war war. Let's talk about this kind of war. Let's talk about spiritual warfare like we preached about this morning. Let's talk about men, mighty men. The Bible calls them men of war, soldiers, warriors, fearless, not afraid of a fight, not timid, not cowards. As we say down south, they got guts. Not easily intimidated. Most men, you can look at them and go, boo. And they'd have to go change their depends. Absolutely can't keep it together. Boo! Boo! Well, this is what I believe. Well, what? Well, I can't believe you believe that. Well, maybe I'm wrong. This is this is what I this is what I believe. I can't believe you believe that way. Well, you know, I could be wrong. I don't know. Just back down, just back down. I can't stand to see somebody back down. Back down. Understand when to go on offense and understand when to go on the defense. Man of war. A man of war knows that. Understands how to use weapons and is not afraid to use it. Come on now. Not discouraged by injuries or quits because of pain or discomfort or don't quit because of injuries. Amen. They just, they just, they, they play hurt. They fight hurt. 
got arrows sticking out of them. They got, they got knives sticking out of their back where they've been in the ministry and somebody stuck a knife in their back. They don't quit. They just keep going. Men of war. Men of war. I got hurt. Walk it off. Walk it off. And people, they're, they're mean to me. Who cares? Men of war sit around sucking their thumb. All the people over there, they're talking about me. No, they're not. They don't even know you exist. I know some preachers are so insecure, they won't even watch football because every time they huddle up, they think they're talking about them. <laughs> who cares? You ain't that important. They ain't talking about you. And if they are talking about you, who cares? Right. Amen. Men of war don't worry about that kind of stuff not discouraged by casualties, people all around them getting blown away, people all around them quitting, people all around them, like I was preaching about this morning, becoming casualties, people getting devoured and chewed up by the devil, people falling into sin, people getting out of the ministry, people getting out of church, a man of war is just gonna keep on fighting, he's gonna keep on fighting, his morale and his cause and his zeal is not affected by all the people around him that are falling, he is motivated by something much greater than those people that are around him. Man of war understands the chain of command and respects higher ranks and authority. A man of war can take orders. Man of war understands the importance of preparation. A man of war understands the importance of communication. A man of war understands the importance of accomplishing the mission. A man of war doesn't run in the heat of the battle. Well, we could just go all night about the man of war. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. It's, it's almost impossible to find a man of war. I know this. We need more men of war. Fight for their marriage. Fight for their home. Fight for their children. David, little David, little David, shepherd boy David, when the lion attacked his father's flock, took one of those lambs and put it in his mouth. You know what David did? He went and got that lamb out of that lion's mouth and said, no, you might eat somewhere, but it ain't going to be here. And for all we know, that little lamb was dead, but he said, you ain't going to enjoy it. And he killed it. And it wasn't even his. Your husband, your wife, your children are worth fighting for. Your home's worth fighting for. Fight. Quit giving, don't give up. Throw in the towel, well, I've done all I can do. You ain't done all you can do till they're patting you on the chest with a shovel. A little early for Western Sunday analogies. But you ain't done until you're pushing up daisies. Come on now. Well, I don't know what else I can do. Well, figure it out. You're a man of war. Fight. And don't stop fighting. When, little, when, little, when Zane, uh, uh, land, uh, uh, when, uh, when uh, Stuart, Stuart was born, he was born five weeks early. His lungs were deflated, full of fluid. They wouldn't even give us a 50-50 chance he was going to live. Laying in that neonatal ICU unit in Augusta, Georgia, laying there and had all these wires and all run to him, laying there under that heat lamp, little bitty preemie diaper on, 
just laying there. That light, his old legs laid open like a little frog laying there. And the doctor said, we, won't even, we can't even give him 50-50 chance. He's going to make it. I remember going over there to him, laying in that, laying in that little, little plastic bin. And I grabbed his little hand, and I was pinching his hand. I was rubbing his hand. I said, boy, you got to fight. you got to fight. you got to fight. I can't help you. Nothing I can do for you. you got to fight somewhere down deep inside. you got to muster up the will to live. He didn't understand what I was saying. But from the time he was born, I was drilled into him. you got to fight. you got to be a fighter. You gotta fight. Men of war. God give us men of war. Warriors. Thirdly, look at what it says. Mighty man, the man of war, the judge. This is men with discernment. Men that have the ability to think with rationality and logic. Boy, that's a that's a rare thing. If we could get men in this country that are sitting on the bench that are called judges. To stop judging based on their emotion and based on the facts and the Constitution, we could turn this country around. Never in my life have I seen. And I told somebody the other day, I said, you can get mad at the president, the White House, you can get mad at Congress and the senators, but I'm going to tell you where the problem is in this country, judges. They won't try the criminals. They try people that are not criminals. Crooked as snakes. But we're not talking necessarily about a judge on a bench with a robe. We're talking about the men that have the sermon in Proverbs chapter number 28 and verse number 5. The Bible says, evil men understand not judgment, but they, seek that, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Let me read that verse again. I stuttered on that. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. You know what's been taken away from this country? Men that have the ability to judge. To look at a situation, analyze the data, the facts, the information, and make righteous judgments based on what they see. They can interpret the law, and they can apply it in any given scenario. Well, that's not what that's talking about. Well, what is it talking about? That's what I'm going to start doing the next time some yahoo says to me, well, that's not what that's talking about. I'm going to say, well, please then, enlighten me. What is it talking about? They only know what it's not talking about. They don't know what it is talking about. Well, guess what? That is what it's talking about. That is what it's talking about. The testimonies and the judgments of God are, are true and they're righteous altogether. And when we read the word of God and then we come up with a conclusion that is contrary to the word of God, that's what I'm talking about tonight. Look at the situation. Look at your children. Look at your marriage. Look in the mirror at your own personal life and make a judgment based on the facts and the law. It's gotten any more where somebody takes the Bible literally, they're looked at as some kind of a fruit loop. Well, who do you think you are to pick and choose which Bible verses we have to listen to? That's what they're doing today with the Constitution. If they don't like it, they just do what they want to. They put their hand on the Bible. They swear to uphold the Constitution, defend the Constitution, and then they do whatever they blessed well please because they don't like the Constitution. Well, that's no different from a Christian that does the same thing with the Word of God calls themselves a Bible-believing Christian and then take half of it and throw it out the window because they don't like what it says. 
The judge can interpret the law and apply it in any given scenario. Listen, they listen to the evidence before, before making a judgment. Look at the facts. Look at the word of God. Look at what it says. Don't jump to conclusions. They're not told what to think or what to believe. They look at the law, look at all the facts, look at all the evidence, and then they make righteous judgments and conclusions. It's not complicated. When, we tore up, when I tore up that cease and desist and our church got fined, people said to me, said, you're going to go to jail. I said, I might go to jail, but I ain't going to stay in jail. Because there's going to be a judge somewhere between here and Supreme Court, because I was going all the way if I had to, somewhere, somewhere we got to find a judge that can read the Bill of Rights. Somewhere there's got to be a judge that knows what freedom of speech and freedom of assembly is. I don't have a law degree, but I can read. There's got to be a judge. I said, there's got to be a judge. One reason why I had boldness and courage was because of the Bible and the truth of the word of God and had the backing of my church. That helped me. But another reason why I had the audacity to tear up a cease and desist from a local authority and defy authorities is because I knew that it did not match up with our constitution. And I knew that the Constitution was the authority. There's got to be a judge somewhere that will read the Constitution, look at what we did and say, what's the problem? We could have settled this thing a long time ago if everybody hadn't been a bunch of chickens about it. A judge, when the evidence had been given, they have the character to make a judgment. Judges are bought off. We got judges that are in the pocket of the mafia and the cartel. They're in the pockets of politicians. They buy them a membership at the golf course or whatever they do. I don't know what the lifetime supply of crab cake. I don't know what they do, but they bought them. They bought, they own them. They own that judge. And if they ever get brought up on any kind of corruption charges, they're not worried about it because they own that judge. That judge is not going to rule against them. But the judge has been taken away. They have the, 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 the character to make a judgment. They have the ability. You know, Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.3, I love this. I just quoted this verse the other day. But Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.3, when he was talking about that man that committed fornication with his father's wife, and he said, you need to put him out of the church, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Remember that? Here's what, here's what Paul said. Paul said, for verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, I've judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. I've already judged on it. You're there looking at it. You can see it. You know everything. And you won't make a judgment call. Paul said, I didn't hurt enough to make a judgment call on this guy. You need to kick him out. People afraid they're going to make the wrong call so they don't make a call at all. That's called analysis produces paralysis. That's what that's called. Well, I don't know if I know everything. You know enough. Has the ability. I'm talking about the judge. We're still talking about the judge. Has the ability to free the innocent and convict the guilty. A couple years ago when our church went through this scandal, I couldn't believe how many preachers said, you ain't got the right to say that. I said, I just did. You ain't got the right to say that. You can't say that. I said, I just did. And I didn't stutter. I'll say it again. <clears throat> well, I don't, I don't know about that. What, did, what do you not understand? What do you not know? 
I'm still getting phone calls and emails weekly of people that are victims of sexual crimes and sexual misconduct in churches from pastors and youth ministers and coaches and school teachers and bus workers. What, tell me exactly what you need to know to bring that gavel down and make a judgment call. What do you need to know? She's 15, she's 14, she's 16. He's in his 40s, in his 50s, married with kids. They're fooling around. They got caught. There's, there's irrevocable evidence. What do you need to know to make a judgment call? We, they're gone. God's taken the judges away. They're gone. Have the courage to sentence and punish those who deserve it. I said, has the courage. Judges have to have the courage to sentence somebody to a, to a sentence in jail. Well, you know, I got, I, I got to looking at them and my heart went out to them. You know, I don't think they meant to do it. What does the law say? What does the law say they deserve? That's what you need to do. Amen. Judge has to have the courage to sentence and pass those, uh, punish those that deserve it. They have to have mercy and compassion to free those that are innocent. Judge. Justice is blind. Meaning there's no double standard and there's no two-tiered justice system. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Amen. In our Christian school here, our teachers have been told, Sister Grant's teaching Zane this year, he's in fourth grade. I told her, I said, don't you let him get away with nothing just because he's the pastor's kid. If he needs to be, if he needs to be, if he needs to be dealt with, you better let me know. I better get an email. Where's Miss Grant? And what I, where are you at? In the nursery? I don't, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want him getting away with something and the little kid right beside him getting demerits for it. That's not justice. That's not right. And a lot of churches I've been to and a lot of Christian schools I've been to had a whole bunch of that junk. Politics and a two-tier justicism. Favorites and favoritism. That's not, that's not, that's not what a, a righteous and honest judge would do. Straight across the board. Level playing field. Amen. I don't care if it's the deacon's kids. I don't care if it's the staff member's kids. I don't care if it's my kids. I don't care who it is. We got one set of rules. This is what we're going to do. That's fair. That's right. That's what God wants us to do. But you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe the buddy system and the politics. Somebody's phone's ringing. Number four. I'm trying to hurry. But it's going to take a while. There's 11 of these. I'm on number four. The prophet, the prophets, number four, the prophet. God's taken away the prophet. Those are men that are spiritual, men that know God on an intimate level. Men that are on speaking terms with God and can communicate with him on a regular basis. These are men that God uses to speak to others for him and share and declare his word. They have the guts and the courage and the wherewithal to be a mouthpiece for God, which is not always as easy as it looks. They don't mind being in the minority. Well, how many times in the Old Testament were those prophets in the minority? Some of them got put in prison. They got slapped in the face. Jeremiah, Jeremiah got put in a, a, a pit, a mud pit, a slime up to his armpits. 
They put rags around his armpits and put him down in a slime pit. Why? Because they didn't like what he said God said. They didn't like what he said God said. And they couldn't take it out on God, so they took it out on the prophet. That's why there's a shortage of prophets. They don't mind being in the minority. They can stand up against the whole crowd if they have to. Oh, oh, Elijah up on top of Mount Carmel. 850 prophets of Baal to one. And he said, y'all go first. Have at it. And all day, all day, jumping up and down on that altar, cutting herself with stones and, 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 and crying out to Baal. Crying out to Baal. And old Elijah sitting over saying, he, I, think he's having, I think he's having a hard time hearing you. I think his, I think his hearing aid batteries are low. You're going to have to say a little bit louder. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's off chasing somebody, pursuing somebody. Why don't you just say a little bit louder? He's just mocking them. One to 850. There ain't too many of those anymore. He looked at his watch. He said, my wife's got supper on the table. We need to get this show on the road. You boys have had plenty of time. I'm paraphrasing. I'm reading between the lines. That's the shiftlet version. The non-inspired shiftlet version. Boys, it's getting supper time. You've been, y'all been at this long enough. Let me at it. He went over there and repaired the altar. Put all the stones back. Put the wood up there. Set the wood in order. Put the, put, the, put the sacrifice up there. And he said, man, it's too easy. It's <laughs> too easy. He said, I need, anybody got some water? I have four barrels of water. Hey, he dug a trench around it. That Bible says deep enough to hold two measures of seed. And they brought four barrels of water in the middle of a drought. It ain't raining in three years. <clears throat> Had to bring it up the mountain. Brought four barrels of water, poured it on the sacrifice. It's, it's gushing. There's a waterfall. It's filled. It's filled up. He said, nah, that's still too easy. It's just too easy. I need four more barrels. And they brought it up there and he poured that out on top of the sacrifice. And man, water just everywhere. Now it's just got mud everywhere. Hey, this is still too easy. I need four more. Twelve barrels of water. I think he was enjoying his job. I mean, there's mud everywhere. There's just water everywhere. The firewood's wet. The sacrifice is wet. The stones are wet. He backed up and he prayed 63 words. And the Bible says fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, the wood and the water and the dust and all of it. God just sent a tomahawk missile out of heaven. Just And unlike a lot of preachers today that would went and posted pictures on Facebook, he said, anybody got a sword? We're not finished yet. And he went down by the brook and he killed every one of them prophets. 850 of them. Now I'm going to tell you something. I ain't going to lie to you. I'd like to see a movie of that right there. You know what God said? He's taking away the prophets. He's taking away the prophets out of our country. They're more interested in being popular than they are being right. A prophet, a prophet places a high premium on the truth. Tell us what God said. No, I don't think you can handle it. No, tell us what God said. Well, this is what he said. <laughs> a prophet understands what's going to happen next and how to prepare for it. Which brings me to number five. Is everybody all right? 
See, y'all are sitting down. Y'all got plenty of oxygen. I'm going to want to about suffocate. Number five, the prudent. Is that next? The prudent. Is that, is that next in our text in verse three, verse, verse two? That word literally in the, is the same Hebrew word that is used to describe those that are soothsayers and do divinations. It's the same idea, but obviously on the, on the right and the righteous and the spiritual side of that. Basically, it is a man that knows how to interpret the signs of the times. It is a man that has an unnatural ability to discern and interpret events and circumstances before they happen. Watch this, Proverbs 22, 3. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. Proverbs 27, 12, verbatim. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. A prudent they're taken away. The prudent, that's the ones that can predict. Those are the ones that can see danger looming right around the corner and they can anticipate it and prepare for it. Let's make an application, shall we? That is the daddy that can predict the direction that your children are going in and be able to see down the road where they're going to end up if something don't happen. That is the man that is able to foresee the landmines in their own marriage and what they can do. I preached about that this morning, about giving place to the devil and about the devil getting advantage. Not being, not being blind to Satan's devices. I'm misquoting that. Not being ignorant is the word of Satan's devices. A prudent man is not ignorant of Satan's devices. He can see it coming a mile off. A prudent man can see what's happening in the church and discern what's going on in the church. A prudent man is not just sitting on the pew enjoying the service, but he's dialed in, plugged in, and he knows where the church is. He knows where the church is going. I'm going, to say, I'm going to take it a step further. A prudent man can interpret a spirit in a service. Not just a church, but in a service. There have been times I got home and I said, there was a weird spirit in there tonight. Something was off. And I didn't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what it was, but it was off. I'd hate to be in a service where it was off and I didn't know it. You know what I mean when I say it's off? Spirit's a little bit quenched. Somebody, there's, a, there's something happening. And it's not, and it's not hitting on all eight cylinders and something's just off. I would not want to be in a church where that was happening and where my pastor was struggling and I was oblivious. I'd want to be so dialed in and be able to be able to sense what was going on where at least I could bow my head, drop my head and say, Lord, help him. Lord, bless him. Lord, help us tonight. A prudent man can tell what's going on before it happens. We got people that can't even tell what's going on and it's already happened. Some of y'all right now are stressed beyond measure over the stupid monkeypox. When are you going to stop buying into this garbage? Monkeypox. Oh my goodness, we're going to get monkeypox. Just the K is silent. It's monkeypox. That's what it is. They done figured out how to get rich, scaring the daylights out of everybody. If I die of monkeypox, I want you to put on my tombstone, he refused to believe it. Okay, just do that for me. <laughs> move me, move, let me hurry. Number, number, number next, the ancient. The ancient. We know what that is. That's the elderly. That's the aged. But it's, it's more than just an old person. It's more than just somebody that's got years on them. That's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the characteristics that are associated with the ancient. 
All right, can I give them to you? It speaks of maturity. 1 Corinthians 12, of 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says, when I became a man, when I became a man, I put away childish things. We live in a, in a generation of some of the most immature men I've ever seen in my life. It's downright embarrassing. It's this is silly, it's embarrassing. Silly, just silliness. Mature, lack of maturity. That ancient speaks of experience, someone that's been around the block. And you don't have to be an old man to have been around the block. You know what it takes to be around the block? Get up and walk around the block. That's how you get around the block. Well, I've been around the block a time or two. Good. You're never going to be around the block standing on the couch. Well, that's deep, ain't it, right there? Job 12, 12, with the ancient is wisdom. With the ancient is wisdom and in length of days, understanding. The ancient speaks of someone that knows what they're talking about. Speaks of the ability to teach and train and instruct others. The ancient speaks of men with wisdom and knowledge and understanding and perspective. It speaks of someone with a track record that is proven over time. They're not a novice. They're not a rookie. They've been there. They've done that. And they've got a whole closet full of t-shirts. Speaks of someone that's not enamored with the latest and the greatest. Speaks of somebody that has a respect for the old way of doing things. Sometimes new is not best. I was reading Ezra chapter number 3 and they laid the foundation of the house of God. The Bible says, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy, reminiscing, remembering the good old days. Oh, I'm glad I'm old enough to know about the good old days, Brother Bittner. I, I pity these younger, younger generation. They don't know what the good old days are. The ancient speaks of somebody that appreciates history. They don't rewrite history. They reread history. They study history. We've got a generation today that don't like all the stuff that happened in our country's past, so let's just rewrite it. Why would you do that? That's not what happened. want to pull down the statue of somebody because they had slaves? I'm against slavery. But that's what, they had slaves back then. It is what it is. Right. You pull down all the statues of the people that had slaves. Whose statues are you going to pull down next? Right. What's really crazy is they pull down the, 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 the statues of statesmen and generals and, and presidents because they had slaves and then put up a statue of a meth head and a crackhead and somebody that robs convenience stores. How much sense does that make? I'd rather you not put any up at all than do that. Add an insult to injury. Rewriting history gets under my skin. I love history. Ancient speaks of some, some, those that appreciate people that have fought and died so we could have what we have today. Well, I was visiting over there with Brother Budok. I was just remembering that conversation we had on your back porch, Brother Budok. You served in Vietnam. No, Vietnam. Was it Vietnam or was it, what war was it? It was in Cuba, but it was during, was it during the Vietnam War? Or was it during the Korean War? Which war was it? Remind me. 
Vietnam War. He was telling me about some of the things that he did. And then he said this. He said, but then I, I meet somebody like Brother Boyd. And he says, I ain't worthy to polish that man's shoes. A man that was deployed. A man that was, Brother Bittner, you know what I'm talking about. You were, you were, you were in the Marines in Vietnam. But there's a, there's a respect for soldiers and those that have paid the sacrifice that you don't seem to find in our young people. Let's flip that over from, the, from those that have served in the, in, in the service of our country to the service of our king. And to have some respect for those that's got some stripes and some bars that's been down this thing a while, that's led people to Christ and started churches and trained preachers and preached hundreds and hundreds of times. Let's show a little bit of respect for those that have served God in the trenches that's been on the front lines. Instead of turning our nose up at them, well, I don't believe that. I don't think that's how we ought to do that. The ancient man has respect for those that have fought battles they've never fought. I'd still rather talk to an old preacher than anybody I could think of on the phone. And when I'm on the road for any period of time, I get on that phone and I call and talk to old preachers. Old preachers. And I pick their brain and I talk to them, run things by them. Iron sharpeneth iron. It helps me. Number, number next, we see it says in verse number three, the captain of 50. The captain of 50. He said, these are the things that have been taken away. The captain of 50. You say, what's the significance of that? That are men, it's men that are qualified, qualified to be leaders. Right. You don't put a man over 50 until he's qualified, until he's reached that, eight, that ability to have that responsibility. Right. Men that can be a leader without being the leader. We're talking about captain of 50. They're a leader without being the leader. Am I still in the book? Men that can follow their leader and yet help him by leading others. Men that can take orders as well as give orders. Men that understand the mission objective and can carry out the mission objective over here in their little sphere with their people and still be part of the bigger picture and contribute to the greater good. The captain of 50. Men that can oversee tasks and get it done effectively. The captain of 50, you don't have to go around behind him and clean his mess up. He's got it together. That's why he's there. Men that have the respect of others. A man that can be promoted into a place of authority and it doesn't ruin him. You give some people a little bit of authority and they go straight to their head. You give them a position, you give them a title, you give them an office, you give them a desk, you give them a business card with the church name and number on it, all of a sudden they morph into something else. Well, how many times have I seen that? It's like, dude, chill. You're a servant. You're a servant. Who do you think you are? You're a servant. You serve the, the sheep. You, you minister to the sheep. You're working... You're, what, what, what is your problem? I'll tell you what happened. They weren't, they weren't the captain of 50. They didn't get the big head because now he's got a little bit of authority and a little bit of leadership. And they don't go and adopt all their own leadership requirements when they get their 50. They stick with the manual that everybody has to go by. Well, I could preach about that a while. Next, we see the honorable. The honorable. In verse number three, I looked that up. It literally means to lift, to bear up, to carry, to, to, to support, to sustain. It means to, to aid or to assist. 
Look it up when you get home in the Hebrew. That's what the word honorable means. It is also translated in another place, armor bearer. In other words, that honorable is not a person sitting up in a high prestigious seat with fancy robes on. The honorable man is the one that is helping other people with their problems and issues and helping bear their burdens. That's the honorable thing. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the fathers in their affliction. That's pure religion. That's the honorable thing, helping other people that are weaker. Genesis, uh, Galatians 6, 2, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. A servant, a burden bearer, one that can sustain and carry others' burdens, one that can carry their burdens and somebody else's. Come on now. Can you help bear other people's burdens or are you the burden that other people have to carry? The honorable has been taken away. People that when they see a need, they just jump in there and meet that need. Talking about men. Women are pretty prone to do that. I'm talking about the men tonight. Ladies, you ought to be hollering amen. You get the night off. I'm, talking, I'm preaching to the men. Help somebody else. Help somebody else. My back was hurting so bad yesterday. I was laying in the bed. I was like, oh. My wife walked in. I said, uh, uh. She said, what is it? I said, I need that blanket. Ceiling fan's on. I'm a little bit cool. I need that blanket. She spread that blanket out over me. I said, now I know how you felt when you had them babies. Oh, my back's killing me. <laughs> we like it when everybody waits on us hand and foot. I wonder how many times we're willing to do that for somebody else. Number next, the counselor. The counselor. Men that are wise and know how to share the wisdom that they've been given by God to help others. Amen. Counselor, men that can give good godly counsel and advice to others. Men that are qualified. Watch this now. Men that are qualified to tell others what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Right. Right. Amen. Where's the men that can walk up to their friend Put their hand on their shoulder and say, buddy, I love you. But you're being a jerk right now to your wife. Amen. I've been watching you, man. I, no wonder your kids won't have nothing to do with you. You're mean to your kids. I love you. But you need to get it together with your kids. Well, preacher, I can't do that. Well, I, I'd have to do it all the time. I said, I'd do that all the time. No wonder your marriage is on the rocks. Dude, you're on Xbox all night. Get it together. Your wife's in there by herself looking at Instagram while you're on the stupid Xbox. And you wonder why your marriage is falling apart. You're never home. You get off of work and go run with all the guys and hang out with all the guys. Leave your wife at home doing laundry, cleaning the house and fixing supper and doing homework. And you ain't home with your family. You're not there interacting with your family, talking to your family, doing stuff with your kids. A pastor shouldn't be the only one doing that. Counselor. Well, it got quiet, didn't it? Men that can lead and give instruction to their families and weaker, struggling Christians. Next, I'm trying to hurry. I'm, I'm hurrying, I promise. The cunning artificer. Boy, I like this one. The cunning artificer. Is that next? Men that are talented and use their talents. For the work of God. 
men that have developed skills, they're smart, they know how to do things. I was reading about old Bezalel in Exodus 31. I like this guy. I'd like to have a half a dozen Bezaleels in our church. We got a few. Thank God for them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, this is Exodus 31. See, I've called by name Bezalel, and I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, in cutting of stones, to set them, and in carving of timber, to work in all manner of workmanship. And it goes on down. He built everything. All the furniture in the tabernacle, he built every bit of it. All of it. He wasn't just a carpenter. He worked with brass, silver, gold, jewels, furniture. He did it all. He was a handyman. I don't know where that's gone, but that's just about gone out the window. Some of you boys, when you get married and you, and you, and you, and you, you spring a leak underneath the sink in your, in your house and water's gushing all over the floor and your wife has jumped up and down screaming, you're going to be digging through your PlayStation seeing if there's a game in there to teach you how to do that. And there's not. There's not, there's not a virtual plumber game. You're developing skill sets that are absolutely worthless. It's a complete, total waste of time. Cunning artificer. Men know how to make money as well as to save it and spend it. They're skilled, they're smart, they know how to provide for their families, and they've got multiple ways of providing income from their family. Men that have studied, applied themselves to master a trade or a skill set, somebody that can make a significant contribution to society. And it's in my notes. i got to read it. Video games is not a skill set that God recognizes as an asset to society. I had to read it. It's in my notes. Lastly, the eloquent orator. The word eloquent literally means intelligent, discerning, insightful, with understanding and perception. And the word orator is translated enchantment or charmed. In other words... An eloquent order is the picture of an effective communicator that when they speak, people will heed and listen and follow what they say. Isn't that amazing? Eloquent order. Men with controlled tongues. I preached about that this morning. Men that have given a lot of thought to what they want to say. They don't just... They don't just flap their gums and run off, run, run off at the mouth, but when they speak, they've thought it through, they've thought it out, it's planned, it's rehearsed, it's polished, and it's effective and it's powerful. 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an answer to every man. Ask it through your reason of the hope that's in you. Men that have studied the power of communication and its ability to affect others. Words matter. Right. Amen. Words matter. Proverbs 25, 11, word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Men that speak with authority and knowledge and research and facts. David said in Psalm 45, verse number 1, I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. When I say something, it's worth writing down. That's what he said. When I say something, it's worth writing down. It's worth keeping in a record. Men that have mastered the language and can use it to make a difference. Articulate. 
Men that can influence others with their words. Men that have learned what to say, how to say it, and when to say it. Men that can explain to their families why they do what they do. I'm going to close with this. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. This is all the things that God said he's taken away. That's what it says. But I got down, I got down to verse number 10. And here's what it said. Say ye to the righteous that it should be well with him. For they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked. It shall be ill with him. For the reward of his hands shall be given him. You don't have to be the rule, men. You can be the exception. Chapter 1. I'm done. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. Verse 7, the country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, strangers devour it. It's desolate, it's overthrown by strangers. Verse number 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Hey, he's taken away all these things. But you can be one of those things. Can I say it like this, guys? Look at me. You ought to strive to be every one of them. Come on. Now it's fixing to get real up in here, all right? Just, just tighten up. And you just get ready. When Brother Leader had all these up here that memorized all 50 verses, I looked at them and I said, look at all them girls. One of the boys wasn't here. There were two or three boys, two or three young men out of all them girls. And I looked at them and I said, that's what I'm preaching about tonight. That's what I'm preaching about tonight. Exactly what I'm preaching about tonight. And that's why, that's why in chapter 3, verse number 4, I'll give children to be their princes. Babes shall rule over them. Hmm. That's what it says. We need some men. We need men to stand up. We need men. There's a desperate need, desperate need. For men in America. To fit the description of men. God's taken away. God's judging this country. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. I drive to work every day and I come up through this neighborhood and I see these teenage boys walking down the sidewalk to school and I shake my head and I thought, I hope to God we don't get invaded. Because if that's what's going to be fighting for us, we're doomed. They wouldn't even know which end of the gun to hold. Got their earbuds in. They're outside with their face mask on. I'm like, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. My heart bleeds. Little boys and kids outside with their face mask on, standing there waiting for the school bus with their earbuds. Boys got their hair down in their eyes. They're bebopping to whatever. Their clothes look like, it's, look, look, look like they crawled through a barbed wire fence to go to school. Just ripped up, tore up, just, 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 and the, and the girls too. But I'm, I'm talking, talking to the boys. It's embarrassing. I'm like, man, that's, this is the future of our country right there. God's taken away. But he don't have to, you can be, you can be an exception. You can be that remnant if you want to be. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I know I preached a long time tonight. I felt like God wanted me to preach it all in one message and not break it up into two parts.